Welcome, Watchmen. I am the Paladin Preacher with Peleus Men's Ministry. Let's jump into tonight's topic. Are you ready? Let's begin. Sovereign Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. Have mercy on us, for you are perfect and we are sinners. Your grace and mercy is unending. Holy Spirit, we beg your presence in this place. Allow us the gift of clarity that we may hear your words today and not our own. Continue to guide us along the path that you have laid out before us. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The King of glory, the Lord of heaven's armies, Yahweh. Amen. God strategically chose somebody born not of favor nor status, but a place of low stature and insignificance. Manual labor instead of paid labor. Somebody toughened from their personal experience in the early years of their life, instead of one who might have had their commencement into life slightly less challenging, with a slightly more favorable job, a lesser amount of physical labor. Not a silver spoon, but a modest wooden cup. If I were to give a quick cinematic semblance from a favorite childhood film, Indiana Jones works his way through a three tests, which are, I must say, inspired, and he walks in on the knight who protects the grail. This knight is not nearly as funny as the French knight in the Monty Python film, but he's still pretty good. He sees in Indiana Jones a modern knight come to defend the grail. He is trying to end this misunderstanding when Elsa and Donovan walk in. Donovan is the movie bad guy and his motivations are not cloudy like Elsa's. He's an American who aligned himself with the Nazis for this specific mission, and he wants everlasting life and all the power that goes with it. He wants the grail. There are many chalices in the temple, though, and the knight tells him, and I quote, You must choose, but choose wisely. For as the true grail will bring you life, the false grail will bring Spielberg's special effects people to create a gruesome death not unlike the deaths in other Indiana Jones movies. Remember that time when their faces melted after they opened the Ark? It will be like that, only perhaps worse. Yeah, I would choose wisely. Donovan says, I'm not a historian. I have no idea what it looks like. Which one is it? Elsa. Let me choose. Donovan, thank you, doctor. Elsa takes about two seconds to choose one, the most beautiful of the golden chalices, and she smiles and hands it to him. She looks over at Indy and looks stricken, and then Donovan drinks from the cup. He begins to realize something is wrong, and he grabs Elsa and forces her to watch his horrible death. The knight utters the best line in all of the three Indiana Jones movies, in my opinion. He chose poorly. As Indy started looking through the chalices to find the right one, Elsa says, it would not be made of gold, posing a question. Indiana Jones says, that's the cup of a carpenter. He drinks from it and the grail knight says, you have chosen wisely. 1 Samuel 16, 1 through 13. And the Lord said unto Samuel, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul? seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
for I have provided me a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take an heifer with thee, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord, and call Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show thee that thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint unto me him whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came unto the Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not unto his countenance, or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as a man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was a ruddy and withal of beauty countenance, and goodly to look it. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David for that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. A couple of items specifically worth touching on here in verse 11 and verse 12. In verse 11 having to do with being a shepherd, and verse 12 having to do with his youth. I think we have some misconceptions of what shepherding is like, especially back in this ancient time. Given our current American culture, which has gravitated towards automation and industrialization, below is a quick excerpt about a modern-day shepherd in a third-world country, so we can have a little glimpse into what a shepherd does day to day. And as you read, be mindful of a young boy doing all these things by himself thousands of years ago. So the article is titled, What Does a Shepherd Do the Whole Day? He accompanies his sheep. Is that all he does? Does he walk with them? Play his flute? Does he daydream? A dream job, possibly. Have you had these kinds of thoughts when you saw a sheep or goat dotting around? Or perhaps the shepherd, as much as the sheep, are so much a part of the land that one may not have spared the thought. Adema, Gopalapa, her husband, and Sangapa, a neighbor and director of the cooperative, dispel such doubts. Adema and Gopalapa are new shepherds in the sense that they don't come from generations of shepherds. They are the landless agricultural laborers of the village, now members of the Gramasiri, a cooperative of landless laborers promoted by the Timbuktu Collective, the sheep, goat rearing, and initiative for supplementing livelihoods that now has become a successful business venture for many families. Adima starts her day at dawn, and sometimes even before that. She cleans up the sheep pen, fills up the water trough while her husband, Gopalapa, goes and brings out tender grain leaves for the lambs. 
The manure collected from the pen is composted and goes towards an additional income for them. After finishing their morning ablutions and tea, Adima gets to cooking food, which she packs up for Gopalapa along with a bottle of fresh water. Too often these days are too hot. Gopalapa, in the meanwhile, has checked over the sheep for ticks and other pests posting on them. He has also cleaned up and dug out stones, sticks, thorns, or like lodged in the hooves of the animals. If we don't do this regularly, the animals could end up with unknown wounds, he says. The sheep by this time had become restless, looking forward to being released from their pen, itching to range across the wide expanse of Cherokuru wasteland. So Gopalapa takes off for his day-long wandering behind the sheep, sometimes taking the sheep to richer pastures, sometimes going with the sheep. Wisdom that intuitively searches out for better places. There is a huge tank bed just behind the village that is a favorite with the sheep and its shepherds. Interestingly, this Serengeti-like grassland landscapes is also the residence of the black buck herds that run away at the sight of an alien sheep, but quite peaceably coexist with the local domesticated animals. And of course, where are the wild herbivores? There are the wild carnivores too. One of the main things we have to do when our sheep graze is keep an eye out for foxes. They are a wily lot. They hide and come out of nowhere, scattering in the grazing sheep in all directions. And if we are not alert to them, we would have lost a couple of, an, of our herd in the blink of an eye, says Sangapa. He goes on to add that the sheep are a peculiar lot, and God knows what makes them run toward danger, but that is what they do. Once they sense the presence of a fox, they run towards it in panic. So yes, the shepherd has to be constantly alert, keep his eye keen and his ears tuned to the presence of a predator. Sometimes it is not only a fox, but a more dangerous cat, a leopard, very rarely visible. Sometimes they follow the herd at a distance, watching and waiting for just that one chance that it will gain him a day's meal. The herd has a pattern too, grazing for a few hours in the morning, then resting through the high heat of the noon, and then grazing once again for a few hours in the evening. We need to find them water from streams or little kuntas so they can have a drink before they rest. We also have to find a good shady place to rest. And that is when the shepherd gets to rest his feet too. The long miles they wander tires him out. By sundown, we start calling out, finding the more adventurous ones who have strayed beyond the herd. And we head home. How do they know their goats? Especially among the hundreds that are returning. Don't they get mixed up? We know each and every one of our animals. We can pick ours out amongst the hundreds. Just like you can find your child even in a crowd of a hundred children, it is also the animal that keeps track. They find their group in their own home, and the animals are too territorial. They don't really allow animals from other herds to come in easily, just like us humans, he says smilingly. Edema is ready by then, the water trough fill, filled with fresh water so the sheep can drink and bed down for the night. Besides the regular grazing, they also make special feeds and preparations so the sheep grow well. Then there is also the ever danger of illness, especially those that can spread like wildfire among the sheep, sometimes killing a lot of them. The sheep also require sustained attention. They can contract, like humans, a variety of illnesses which gets treated by the shepherd." End quote.
And that was from A Day in the Life of a Shepherd, which was an article I found online talking about a day in the life of a modern shepherd in a third world country. So a few other areas I found important that also parallel David's life included waking before dawn to begin his daily chores and not finishing his day until the last sheep is back in their pens and all are accounted for. David would have spent all day walking with his sheep in the hot sun and blistering winds, getting to know his animals intimately and providing green grazing pastures and water features for the animals. He would have been dealing with the immense 20 to 30 degree temperature fluctuations in the desert, depending on the season and altitude he was traveling in. David would have constantly been on the lookout for predators because due to Israel's diverse geographical and biodiversity, in ancient times, this territory was home to major predators specific to the geography and general location, including Asiatic lions, Arabian leopards, Syrian brown bears, Asiatic cheetahs, reed cats, wild and rabid dogs, hippopotami, Syrian elephants, crocodiles, Levant vipers, just to name a few, not to mention how dangerous the roads already were for traveling because of the robbers around during those ancient times if you were traveling by the roads. As a side note, even the Knights Templar members of a Roman Catholic monastic order of warrior priests who eventually came to Israel during the Crusades between the 12th and 14th centuries as part of the Crusade, noted how treacherous the journey was on the road to Israel. And it became not only dangerous from raiders and thieves, but also wild animals attacking travelers to and from the roads into Israel. So. Needless to say, to be a shepherd in the ancient times was no laughing matter and required stamina, care, strength, intelligence, practice, and a serious amount of discipline. So first it must be asked, how common was travel in Israel? On the one hand, widespread traveling would have been created as a need for a well-developed network of roads, while a non-traveling population, on the other hand, would require few roads. Travel in ancient Israel was severely limited due to the perilous traveling conditions of the day. In ancient times, the traveler had to face numerous dangers. He was virtually at the mercy of robbers and the none-too-friendly attitude of the people of the towns and villages through which he would have had to pass. The second item I wanted to touch on in this verse 12, which references David's age, was that there was speculation and investigative work surrounding how old David was when he was chosen. However, no one has been able to definitively choose how old David was, just that he was the youngest of his brothers. We do know that age is not reflective of how God chooses his key figures of the Bible. He chooses whomever he wants for his purpose, regardless of age, however young or however old. Something else of note is that culture during this ancient period favored the firstborn son during this time. The Jewish virtual library regarding this has the following to say regarding the firstborn children in ancient Israelite society. So biblical legislation gave the firstborn male a special status with respect to inheritance rights and certain cultic regulations. The latter part of the complex of the cultic requirements also applied to the first issue of the herds and flocks, which in the popular consciousness were considered particularly desirable as sacrifices, 
Abel pleased God by offering him the firstlings of his flock in Genesis 4.4. The requirements of the cultic codes were based on the notion that God of Israel had a claim on the first offspring of man and beast, which were to be devoted to him in some manner. We've also seen it in Exodus when uh, the angel of death kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians. So you see that same theme that there was a hierarchy in ancient times in Israel of the firstborn son having certain status among individuals in the family. And so when we see David, we see David has no status. He has the lowest status. He has the hardest job and he comes from the lowest and most difficult background he could possibly come from. The requirements of the cultic codes were based on the notion that God of Israel had a claim on the first offspring of man and beast, which were to be devoted to him in some manner. This notion also governed the prescriptions regarding the offerings of the first fruits. The characterization of the human bekor, as quoted, the first fruit of vigor, end quote, coming from Genesis 49.3, Deuteronomy 21.17, Psalm 78.51 and Psalm 105.36 stresses the relation to the father and the adumbrates of the firstborn status of principal heir and the successor of his fathers as head of the family. At the same time, the specification that the bekor be the, quote, first issue of the womb, end quote, coming from Exodus 13.2, Exodus 12, Exodus 15, and Numbers 8.16, which reflects the religious significance of the first products of a procreative process in human and animal life, stresses the biological link to the mother. Whereas it was usually possible to ascertain the paternity of human beings, this clearly did not hold true of animals, and there was never any attempt to base animal cultic regulations on considerations of specific paternity. Now two rather distinct conceptions can be made out. A sociological one, that's the first one, which is assigned exceptional status to the first male in the paternal line, and the cultic one, which is the second, which is assigned special status to the first male issue of the maternal line. The sociolegal conception was preserved by a legislation governed inheritance. In cultic legislation, the decor of the legal tradition was required in order for the cultic regulations to apply to be also the first issue of his mother's womb. So you had to be the first one out of the womb. So if you were twins, whoever was the first one out of the womb gained the inheritance. According to Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 17, a father was obliged to acknowledge his firstborn son as his principal heir and to grant him a double portion of his estate as his inheritance. And this also comes from Ze Zechariah 13.8. And the term was Pishenaim, which means two-thirds. Pishenaim, two-thirds. So with that in mind, the intention of the text is that the firstborn shall get whatever fraction a double portion may come to. In the case posited in the text where there are only two sons, it is two-thirds. But, there are, but where there are three sons, it is one half, and so on. The correct inference drawn in 123 BC from 1 Chronicles 5, chap, chapter 5, verse 1, which expressly terms Joseph's status as quote-unquote firstborn. Joseph received twice the portion of any of his brothers. 
from Genesis 48.5 and Genesis 48.22. This obligation was to apply irrespective of the status of the son's mother in a polygamous family. This inheritance right is termed mispat ha-bekorah, otherwise known as the rule of birthright from Deuteronomy 21.17, and is the legal process by which the firstborn son was designated is expressed by the verb yakir, or known as he shall acknowledge. So the term yakir in Hebrew means he shall acknowledge. Undoubtedly, the acknowledgement involved certain formal legal acts which are not indicated in Bible literature. In a different context, God acknowledged Israel as his firstborn in Exodus 4.22, Jeremiah 31.8. A son addressing his father might also refer to his own status as firstborn son, as in Genesis 27.19 and Genesis 27.32. It is evident from the composition of biblical genealogies that the status of the core was a pervasive feature of Israelite life. In many such lists, there is a formula which specifies the status of the first listed son. For example, in Numbers 1 verse 20, the sons of Reuben, the first sons of Israel, were, and it goes on to list out the genealogy, you can also follow along the genealogies in Genesis chapter 35, verse 23, Genesis 36, verse 15, Exodus 6, verse 14, and the frequently uh, genealogies in 1 Chronicles. Even in genealogies which do not specifically indicate the status of the firstborn son listed, it is clear that he is the firstborn. There are suggestions in the Bible that primogeniture carries certain duties and privileges in addition to the estate rights. See Genesis 27 and Genesis 48.13, Genesis 8.20, 1 Chronicles 26.10, and the second in line was termed ha Mishene, 1 Samuel 17.13, 2 Samuel 3.3, 1 Chronicles 5.12. So there is a clear delineation between who the first son was and who the second in line was. You have two clear, distinct, clearly distinct terms to identify these individuals. The status of the firstborn in royal succession is not clearly defined, however. The Israelite kings were often polygamous, and the relative status of several royal wives figured in determining a succession, making the Deuteronomic law cited above appear more like an ideal than a reality, so far as the king was concerned. A king might, for a variety of reasons, also be disposed to officially reject one of his sons. Accordingly, there were instances where the first in the royal line of succession did not, in fact, succeed his father. It is not known whether the firstborn in families of the high priests had a special status. From the exception noted in 1 Chronicles 26.10, it is inferable that the firstborn of a Levitical clan was normally placed in charge of his brothers. There is some evidence that the firstborn daughter, Bekira, in Hebrew, was customarily married off before her younger sister, referencing Genesis 29.16 and Samuel 18.17. In the Genesis narrative, one sees how primogeniture was disregarded as a clan of Abraham. The son most suited to carry on the line of Abraham, with its attendant, 
responsibility for transmitting the clan's unique religious belief, was acknowledged as the head of the family, even if it meant passing by the firstborn. Indeed, even if it was entailed banishing him from the household. For instance, Isaac was preferred to Ishmael in chapter 21, Jacob to Esau, chapter 27. The terminology employed in Genesis when compared to that of Deuteronomy 21.17 is problematic, and allowance for a degree of inconsistency in technical usage must be made. In Genesis, Jacob contends with Esau over two matters. First, the Pekorah, which Jacob secured from Esau, who despised it, in exchange for a cooked meal, Genesis 25, 29-34, and, and second, the Barakah, the blessing, which Jacob secured by deceiving his elderly father on, into thinking that he was a blessing Esau, Genesis 27. Of the two terms, the Barakah counted for more, probably because pronouncing the blessing was considered to be the act formally acknowledging the firstborn as the principal heir. The Barakah the blessing connotes both the blessing which is to be pronounced and the effects of the blessing. For instance, the wealth transmitted as inheritance. In Deuteronomy 21.17, the term Bekorah refers specifically to the estate rights. Owing to his favored status, the firstborn was considered the most desirable sacrifice to a deity where human sacrifice was practiced. On the verge of a defeat, Mesha, king of Moab, sacrificed his eldest son and acknowledged a successor, 2 Kings 3.27. In a prophetic passage, the sacrifice of the firstborn is singled out as that offering which might be supposed the most efficacious for expiation, Micah 6.7. The importance of the Bekor is dramatized in the saga of the ten plagues God inflicted upon the Egyptians, the last of which struck down their firstborn. Exodus 11.5 and Exodus 12.12. This serves as the etiology of the legal cultic requirement that the male firstborn man and beast in Israel were to be devoted to God. The Lord acquired title to Israel's firstborn, human and animal. By having spared them, he struck the firstborn of the Egyptians, Numbers 3.13. The priestly tradition goes on to explain that the Levites as a group were devoted to cultic service in substitution for all the firstborn Israelites, Numbers 3.12. This would seem to be the historicization of the situation that in fact obtained independently of the particular events surrounding the Exodus. The laws governing the redemption of the firstborn wrote down in Exodus 13.15, Exodus 34.19, Deuteronomy 15.19, presumably derived from the cultic matrix. At one time, firstborn sons were actually devoted to cultic service as temple slaves, Nazarites and the like. Subsequently, other arrangements were made for supplying cultic personnel while the sanctity of the firstborn was lifted through redemption. This underlies the priestly traditions of the history of the Levites and their selection of cultic service." End quote. Now that we have a clear understanding of the firstborn and the status which came with this privilege returning to David, we read David's father Jesse, in fact, had multiple sons. Some determined the exact number of his eight sons and naming the first three Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah, and David as the youngest. The book of Chronicles names seven sons of Jesse, Eliab, Abinadab, Shemaiah, Nathaniel, Radai, 
Ozem, and David, as well as two daughters, Zeruai and Abigail. I do want to emphasize David was not first, he wasn't second, he was not third, he was not even fourth in line. He was coming in dead last in an ancient culture which typically only looked at the first and second born as a primary indicator through which we would see true inheritance. Although we see that God will use a nobody and make him or her a somebody for his divine purpose. We emphasize this point further as we go back in scripture to 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in the word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. It seems God made a crucial decision in the following verses as they describe how the sons of Jesse were chosen to go into battle against the Philistines. The following is an excerpt from 1 Samuel 17. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite, of, Beth of Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man went among them for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and next to him were Abinadab, and the third son, Samah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. As a member of his family, we can imagine David was probably the runt of the litter, probably picked last for kickball, and was stuck with the greatest number of chores. As anybody can attest to growing up with siblings, he was probably roughed up and given a challenging time during his childhood in a social and familial setting. As we discussed earlier, the privileges associated with being the first and second born would allow for more privileges during his upbringing, but to be last in line in a family with this size had to be nearly devastating. David probably felt pretty unlucky, hardened, and maybe even a little degraded emotionally. He probably grew up with a chip on his shoulder, but he loved God. He was also stuck with arguably the least reputable job as a shepherd, which is extremely hard work. Who knew the slogan overworked and underpaid predated even many ancient workplace establishments? With that being said, anybody who has been in a situation where you are grinding out real manual labor can attest to the body and mind adaptation as well as the ancillary benefits of self-confidence and life skills. It allows ample time in solitude, growing in personal strength and reliance on God. God strategically chose somebody who wasn't born in a place of favor, but a place the opposite of favor, and manual labor instead of outsourceable labor. Somebody who was tough from their personal experience in their early years of their life, instead of a brother who had it much easier, with the best jobs and the least amount of physical challenges. Not a silver spoon, but a modest wooden cup. In verse 13 of 1 Samuel 17, it says that the three eldest and most favored by rank went with the king's men to fight, and David returned to his flock. It also says, but David went and returned from Saul in verse 15, emphasizing the word returned, which is plausible. David and his brothers had already made the journey from their home in Bethlehem to Saul's location and subsequently returned home. Based on contemporary estimates, the location on the map from Eshtal, 
the location where they believe the battles between the Israelites and Philistines take place, and Bethlehem are approximately 33.3 kilometers to 44.4 kilometers, or 20.69 to 27.58 miles, depending on which modern road taken. However, David walked the road, or rode a donkey, or a horse, or an animal. Most likely he walked, the, la the latter being less likely. Additionally, the most direct route is over a mountain ridge that passes between the two locations, which is not a simple feat. This is also presumably the same route which David took when bringing supplies to his brothers who were on the front lines of the battle. If David wasn't already a seasoned traveler and an incredible endurance athlete from his years of shepherding, it is unlikely that many men, if any, could endure this type of traveling and daily activity with a commitment to bring the supplies to his brothers on the front lines, day after day, while still tending his father's sheep, and still holding his commitment to his family. Father God, thank you for coming before us today, for giving us a word. We pray that your the reading of your scripture today will bless us, and that we will be able to hear your words. We pray that you will be a continual light in the darkness of our day today. We know that there's so much turmoil going on amidst COVID-19, amidst all the riots, and amidst these people that are actually hurting and that they're in agony, Lord, that they just want to be heard. We, we pray that these people around the world can be heard. We know that you are hearing their cries for help, Lord. We know that you are putting people around the world in places to help these individuals and that they will be changing the world for better. We ask that you are continuing to grow us and change us and mold our clay, Lord, so that we can continue to be vessels for your use, Lord. Continue to bless our world. Continue to do your work in this place. And we ask that the Holy Spirit continue to change us in ways that we can be more useful to the kingdom and we can continue to bring people to know you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.